section twenty three of hildebrand and his times by william richard ward stevens this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter sixteen character of henry v and pascal the second council of troyes henry's visit to italy scene in st peter's rome coronation of henry v strife between henry and pascal death of the pope eleven o six to eighteen part one the reign of henry v opened with fair prospects men of all ranks and parties longed for a season of repose and for the moment henry was the centre round which all alike could rally he was an astute man who saw his opportunities and resolved to make the most of them an adept in the art of dissembling he had behaved himself modestly towards the bishops submissively toward the nobles and obsequiously toward the pope as long as it served his turn but now that he was his own master his real character in which avarice selfishness and overbearing tyranny were conspicuous qualities began to betray itself peace meant with him nothing less than the absolute submission of the german nobility the commonalty and the papacy he soon found out that in pascal he had to deal with a man of very different metal from gregory or urban pascal was one of those men who with fixed principles have neither the skill to adapt them to circumstances nor the courage to enforce them in the face of opposition he made bold speeches which he was compelled to retract and embarked on bold courses of action from which he was compelled to recede at his first synod he had taken a strong line inflicted severe penances on the imperialist bishops and degraded ravenna from its metropolitan rank he was flattered by henry's specious promises and accepted his invitation to visit germany where he hoped to make a grand display of his authority at a large synod to be held at augsburg presently being alarmed at hearing that the prohibition of lay investiture would be strenuously resisted by the king and nobles he changed his mind and resolved to hold a synod in france if he could secure the support of the french king and the french clergy it would give him an advantage he hoped in dealing with the german powers late in the autumn of eleven o six he set out from italy and spent christmas at cluny citations were issued for a synod to be held at troyes in the following may in the interval envoys from henry had a conference with pascal at chalon on the marne they informed him that the king would resolutely insist upon his right to approve the appointment of bishops and to invest them with the ring and staff pascal flatly refused to acquiesce in this right it would be a relapse into slavery and a dishonour to the clergy to accept those sacred symbols from the blood-stained hands of laymen the envoys withdrew muttering threats the council of troyes was attended by a large number of french and burgundian bishops and clergy but none from germany there was much splendour but little enthusiasm the old decrees against lay investiture and clerical marriage were repeated some german bishops were suspended for contumacy in disobeying the summons or for having received investiture at lay hands but on henry himself no threat or punishment was pronounced 
the severity of the pope to the bishops excited the anger of the clergy his leniency toward the king provoked their contempt henry i king of england had lately consented to renounce his right to invest with ring and staff but now anselm feared that he would be encouraged to resume it henry of germany certainly set the decrees against lay investiture utterly at defiance he cared nothing for the pope or the papal party except so far as he could make them serve his own interests and having used the pope to help him to his throne he now regarded him merely as an adversary or rival and watched a favourable moment for putting him under his feet for two years there was little or no communication between them pascal returned to italy after the council of troyes henry was occupied with expeditions into hungary and bohemia which brought him neither gain nor glory for he had not inherited the military capacity or energy of his father in the spring of eleven ten at a diet held in regensberg he announced his intention of visiting italy in order to be crowned at rome to defend the church to recover the lands which had been lost to the empire and to re-establish law and order bruno archbishop of trier frederick archbishop of Köln, and adalbert the chancellor were sent as ambassadors in advance and met with an encouraging reception from the countess matilda as well as from the pope after a diet had been held at speyer in the middle of august eleven ten the army marched for italy henry crossed the great st bernard with one division while the other took the pass of the brenner the descent of an emperor or heir of the empire into italy with a powerful army at his back was an event which had not been witnessed for a long time and a special chronicler a man named david from the scotch abbey at Würzburg, who afterwards became bishop of bangor accompanied the expedition for more than ten years the imperial authority south of the alps had been in abeyance save in the marches of verona and istria and in the duchy of spoleto where the emperor's vice-regent werner a schwabian vigorously maintained his rights elsewhere both the municipalities and the feudal lords had enlarged their possessions and strengthened their independence could italy now have been united under one strong government it might have defied all invaders but there was no central authority the great countess was old and failing in strength and pascal was not the man to combine and organize diverse and often jarring elements he was continually harassed by insurrections in rome and the campagna which could only be suppressed by the precarious aid of the normans the northern towns were often at strife with their bishops and the neighbouring nobles and were too jealous of each other to form a league milan was at war with cremona and lodi pisa with lucca henry indeed announced himself to be coming as the friend of italy and of the holy see but all knew him well enough by this time to be sure that his real aim was absolute dominion the towns the nobles the bishops the pope and even the normans felt that their independence was menaced yet the common fear did not lead to any measures for the common defence the imperial army mustered in the roncalian fields the lombard towns with the exception of milan and pavia sent in their submission the countess matilda acknowledged henry's suzerainty and only begged to be exempted from contributing troops to the imperial forces in november 
the army moved southwards from Parma. The season was a very rainy one, and great losses of baggage and horses were incurred in crossing the Apennines. Christmas was spent in Florence. Thence they moved to Arezzo. Envoys were sent to Rome with a friendly letter to the citizens, and an invitation to the Pope to attend a conference for the settlement of all questions at issue, to be followed by the coronation of the king. The returning envoys met the king at Aqua Pendente. They brought encouraging replies from the people and the Pope, and the Chancellor, Adalbert, and four knights were now sent forward to confer with Pascal, while the army halted at Sutri. The Pope was in a dilemma. He could not rely on the Romans or on the Normans to offer any resistance to the king, and yet he dared not concede the right of lay investiture, the very point for which the church had been making such a long and gallant struggle. He tried to escape by making a proposal which he must have known to be impracticable. He offered the surrender by the clergy of all property and privileges held under the crown, cities, lordships, rights of holding courts, of coining and receiving customs and dues were to be given up, and the clergy were to live henceforth entirely upon their tithes and free-will offerings, on condition that the king renounced the right of investiture. Pope and king were to swear to this contract in St. Peter's, and hostages for its fulfillment were to be given on both sides. It suited the king's immediate purpose very well to effect acquiescence in this preposterous proposal. On February 11th, 1111, the royal army arrived at Monte Mario. The coronation was to take place on the morrow, which was Sunday. In the morning, the king rode to St. Peter's, followed by a brilliant retinue, and escorted by the guilds of the city with music and banners. At the top of the steps before the entrance, he was received by the pope and cardinals. He kissed the foot of the pope, who raised him up, and after saluting each other thrice, they walked hand in hand to the silver gates where Henry took the customary oath to defend the church and pope in time of need. But he added the significant declaration that he would confirm to all bishops, abbots, and churches whatever had been granted to them by his predecessors. Thus he designed to throw upon the pope all the odium of the proposed surrender of church property. Two chairs were placed on the porphyry pavement of the church, where the king and the pope were to swear to the covenant. The pope's oath was very strongly worded. It absolutely condemned all participation in worldly affairs as irreconcilable with the clerical office. The clergy had become ministers of the court rather than of the altar. The property which they were now to restore to the crown, they were never to demand back under pain of excommunication. The Pope can hardly have been surprised at the burst of indignation with which the proposed compact was received, especially as there was a clause which bound the king to leave the patrimony of St. Peter intact. The Pope, it was said, provided for his own safety, whilst he scrupled not to spoil the church. Nobles as well as bishops exclaimed that the Pope's oath was heretical and intolerable the king withdrew into his side-chamber to confer with some of the objectors. The delay was long, and at last the pope sent a request that the king would come back to finish the proceedings. But some of the German bishops presented themselves before the pope, 
and solemnly declared that his proposal was considered uncanonical and therefore invalid pascal attempted to justify it by quotations from the bible and the fathers but in vain nothing but the repudiation of the oath would satisfy the german clergy the day was drawing to a close the pope and the cardinals were so closely hemmed in by the german soldiers that they could scarcely get up to the altar to celebrate mass still less were they able to leave the church they were in fact prisoners and at nightfall were taken closely guarded to a neighbouring hospital many of the clergy were shamefully handled on the way their silver censers wrenched from their hands their splendid vestments torn off their back some were even stripped of their shoes and stockings some cardinals who escaped spread the news through the city the infuriated people took a wild revenge by murdering such german pilgrims and merchants as they could find in the streets early on monday morning the mob made a violent attack upon the royalists near st peter's henry himself led a charge against the assailants and transfixed five of them with his lance but fell at last from his horse wounded in the face otto a melanese viscount who lent him his horse was seized and literally torn to pieces and his flesh cast to the dogs after three days henry found it prudent to retreat towards soracte and he carried off the pope and sixteen cardinals with him and kept them all close prisoners although they were treated with respect and he soon released the bishops of parma piacenza and reggio as he wished to keep on good terms with the countess matilda he fixed his camp on the anio near tivoli whence he could easily keep up communications with rome and intercept any army which might approach from the south from that quarter however henry had nothing to fear and pascal nothing to hope roger of sicily had died a few years before and the other norman leaders robert of capua a great nephew of robert guiscard and roger of apulia robert guiscard's son were far too much afraid of insurrection at home to think of attacking henry or sending succour to the pope meanwhile henry's troops ravaged the roman territory and the strongest pressure was put upon the pope to induce him to concede the right of investiture out of pity for the sufferings of the prisoners and the degradation of the roman church and at last pascal gave way for the peace and freedom of the church he said i am constrained to do what i would not have done to save my own life and thus the principle for which his predecessors had striven so long and suffered so much was deliberately surrendered in return for the immediate release of the pope and the cardinals from captivity and a promise from henry that he would henceforth be an obedient son of the church the compact was sworn to by the pope and sixteen cardinals and by henry his chancellor adalbert and thirteen nobles in the camp a scribe was dispatched to rome to transfer it to parchment and on his return the pope and the king signed the document End of section twenty three